Welcome to Cato Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, April 2nd. This is your host, Anastasia Glova. Last week, Olaf Gersemann, foreign news editor of the Financial Times Deutschland, spoke at the Cato Institute about the role of corporate social responsibility in the business economy. Olaf is also author of the Cato book Cowboy Capitalism, which compares European social and economic policies to those of the United States and finds that the welfare states of continental Europe offer no meaningful advantage over the American brand of capitalism. For today's podcast, I pick Olaf's brain about corporate stewards of the environment, immigration and integration, and what's wrong with old Europe. You spoke a lot at your forum about corporate social responsibility. Is there any validity to this concept? Corporate social responsibility, or CSR as it's called, is highly popular among executives nowadays. Most major companies nowadays say they are actually behaving in a socially responsible way or they're aiming at it. And I think one has to be very skeptical if you hear executives saying something like this because I think it's highly problematic if managers start to get into this kind of business they are not hired for. You made the point in your speech that executives are not qualified to make decisions about how to improve the world, but who then is qualified? Is there some monopoly on who can make decisions that impact the environment? No, I mean, on an individual basis, some uh, private entrepreneur or some private citizen decides that he wants to further promote some social ends, like fighting for the uh, environment, saving the environment, fighting against poverty. That's certainly a very honorable thing to do, and there's nothing to say against it. And the same is true if the democratic majority decides that we want to, say, send development aid to the third world. Nothing to say against it. However, in this case, we are talking about executives whose business it is to manage a company and to extract as much profits as possible from the businesses if they actually decide to spend money and they are not specialized in, they're not experts in, and it's actually other people's money, it's not their own money. Executives who spend money on CSR are basically putting a tax on their own stockholders, the people who hired them. And that's why I think it's very problematic if executives get into this business. Would you be able to cite some specific instances when companies that have acted on corporate social responsibility have done so to their own or to society's detriment? Yeah, one thing, for instance, is many companies, for instance, the German company Adidas, they nowadays require their manufacturers from Pakistan, Bangladesh, India, what have you, to ban child labor. Child labor might certainly horrible thing. And to get rid of it, it's certainly an honorable aim. But all studies that are also show that you have to be very, very careful in what you do because you might end up harming the very people you are intended to help. And this is because, for instance, instead of Pakistani children being replaced by Pakistani adults, they might be replaced by adults in Turkey. So the whole business is gone and the communities in Pakistan are worse off. So you have to be very careful how to handle it. And I think if you're talking about measures against child labor, this is better left to governments, to NGOs, maybe to people from academia who actually have expertise in these kinds of issues. And corporate executives usually don't. Another example is Starbucks is promoting or advertising the fact that they are paying a higher price to coffee growers in Central America than the market price. However, this is also problematic because 
prices normally have a signaling function. So, and the signal here gets distorted. So, what you probably will see is that capital and labor will remain in the coffee growing business in Central America for a longer time than they otherwise would do so. And in that way, Starbucks policy might actually impede structural change in these countries and thereby harming the long term well being of, again, the very people they intend to assist. To return to the theme of your book, Cowboy Capitalism, do you see any chance that the European model of soft, comfy capitalism will change course to be more in line with the American model? I think one has to be very skeptical. There have been different sets of countries in Europe, certainly. I mean, the first the Anglo-Saxon countries, Ireland and Great Britain, and but leave them out of the equation right now because they are more American than they are European in an economic sense by now. But if you look at continental Europe, you have two groups of countries, basically, in Western Europe. First are those small open economies, and they actually have reacted quite nicely to problems that came up with the welfare state, with global competition, etc. And that is basically because they are much more vulnerable. Uh, a country like the Netherlands, exports and imports there make up roughly 50% of GDP. In a country like this, if you do any major mistakes, you're going to feel the pain very suddenly and very severely. So, And that's what happened to the Netherlands 25 years ago, and they reacted to it by changing course quite radically. The same is true for Denmark, which by now is a very successful economy, to a lesser extent Sweden and Finland. However, countries like France, Germany, and Italy are a much different case because they're not small open countries, but mid-sized and less open countries, meaning that they could afford to do wrong economic policies for a longer time. And now they're going down a slippery slope, and the pain increases only slowly. They're not hitting a wall like the Dutch did 25 years ago. Uh, I mean, there's this famous comparison. I mean, if you put a frog into a boiling water, he will jump out and survive. If you put a frog into a bowl of cold water and then heat the water, you're going to cook him because he will stay in there. And this, I fear, is still the danger for uh, countries such as France, Italy, and Germany, that we do feel comfortable. We are still a rich country, but we are falling further and further behind other countries, such as the United States. I understand the, the frog example. These countries have acclimated to this kind of living standard, and it's very difficult to change. But perhaps increased immigration to Europe will provide the kind of incentive they need to follow a more American model of capitalism. What do you think? First of all, I mean, uh, you have to see what kind of immigrants you get. For instance, we had a large wave of people from the Balkans in the uh, 1990s. And we had, before the Dayton Agreement of 95, we had about 350,000 refugees from Bosnia in our country. So what we did was we assumed that they would take away our jobs. So we made it legal for them to work, basically. We made it legal for them to set up companies. We did hand them out welfare checks and we gave their kids free schooling, but actually we kept them out everywhere else. And after the Dayton Agreement, there was what we call, ironically, a burden sharing. So other countries had to agree that they also take on some of the Bosnian refugees who were living in Germany at the time. So what happened was, out of the 350,000 people, only 50,000 remained in Germany and these were the old and the sick. 
those who needed humanitarian assistance, but those who weren't productive in the sense that they could add to German GDP in any meaningful way. But the young and the qualified, etc., etc., they went abroad. They didn't want to go back to the Balkans for obvious reasons, so they went to countries such as Australia, Canada, and the United States. And there are now big Bosnian communities in, I think, Chicago, St. Louis, and the small city of Utica in upstate New York. And if you go to Utica, I've, I've been there, I've visited it, uh, there's a big, big community of refugees from Bosnia who have spent time in Germany. So they can directly compare the systems between the United States and Germany, how they are treated. What they were telling me basically was, okay, Germany is a great country to live in for Germans. Because the big, big difference here in the United States was they had a right to welfare for like half a year, I think, and then never again. But they were allowed to work from day one. They were allowed to set up companies, which they did, because they found out that there's better car mechanics, better hairdressers, whatever, the local people there. So they are thriving in upstate New York, something we didn't give them the opportunity to in, in, in Germany. So to come to the point, finally, I'm highly skeptical that we are ready to actually make use, so to say, of immigrants, refugees, what have you, in a productive way. We just treat them as people who want to take something away from us, thereby actually um, deepening the problems we already have because it's certainly making the welfare roles even bigger than they used to be, uh, the labor market problems even bigger than they used to be. So I'm highly skeptical that immigration is fostering economic reform in Europe. And the Paris suburbs will continue to burn? The big, big problem we now have and increasingly have in Europe or in the big countries of continental Europe is the insider-outsider problem. That's a term economists tend to use. So we have this big but thinking group of insiders who are well-protected, who have good jobs, high-paying jobs. Yeah, they're protected everywhere, short working hours, etc., etc. And this protection has caused a lot of unemployment. So there's a growing minority of people who are outsiders, who can't get into the system anymore. They get into the system with much less protection, if at all, with much lower wages, with longer working hours, but many of them are actually shut out on a long-term basis. And we now have not only the problem of high unemployment, but the even bigger problem of high long-term unemployment. Because as you in America now with welfare reform, it's very hard to get people back to the labor market after their human capital eroded. Once people get used to not having to get up at a certain time and being uh, at an appointment at a certain time, it's very hard to get them back on the labor market. And now we have an increasing share of people who now face this problem. It's very hard for them to get back to work, even if there were jobs available. And this, France has a specific problem because many of those people shut out from the system from the labor market are very young people. So we in Germany, in our case, it's more the people who are 40 years old, 50 years old, and we pay them welfare checks and they get along, not too nicely, but they get along and they stay at home, but do the same thing to 20-year-olds and you will have suburbs burning, like in Paris. The majority of support for the Cato Institute's work comes from individuals, and Cato depends solely on tax-deductible contributions to provide the public with a wealth of free resources, including this podcast. We hope you'll consider supporting or even joining Cato. For information, please go to www.cato.org.